Hello, it's Wednesday, March the 16th. This is the Andrew Pearce Show and it's coming, as ever, from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up, those meal deals which you like the look of in Boots and other high street stores are in fact full of salt, even more salt than a Big Mac and fries. Why we seem to be relentlessly heading into a recession, one of the worst since the 1970s. British sanctions have targeted almost 400 Russian, Belarusian individuals and entities. But first, Peter Tatchell, in a coruscating article in the Mail, has attacked his former colleagues in the Stop the War coalition for their miserable failure to criticise Russia over its build-up of troops on the borders of Ukraine. So the veteran human rights campaigner Peter Thatcher has written powerfully in the Daily Mail this week about the Stop the War Coalition. It is, of course, the best-known anti-war group and uh, has been supported by a number of senior Labour MPs. The group has come in for a barrage of criticism following its failure to stand up to Russia when Putin began amassing tanks and troops on the border of Ukraine. Instead, it chose to criticise NATO. Peter Tatchell joins me now. Peter, some of these people you've been criticising, you could argue possibly, are old friends of yours, in, in a sense, and old political comrades. They are indeed. And I was a founding supporter and long-time campaigner for Stop the War. They have done amazing work against the Iraq War and against the mistakes we made in Afghanistan. But I am very sad to say that in more recent years, they really have lost the plot. They didn't organize any protests or even criticisms when Russia intervened in Georgia in 2008, when Russia annexed Crimea in 2014, and when Russia began its terror bombing campaign in Syria from 2015. Now, what Russia is doing right now in Syria is the same as what they're doing in Ukraine, yet Stop the war has never supported any protest against that and never organised one themselves. So I'm really, really disappointed and quite angry, to be honest. Um, and, and here we have, Peter, a, a European democracy fighting for survival, as you say, against a fascist tyranny. Uh, and yet none of these people have felt it in, in them to express a single word of criticism. Is this because they still have some affection or harking back to the old Soviet Union, which was also, by the way, <laughs> a totalitarian regime? Well, to be fair, since the invasion by Russia, Stop the War has spoken out against it and condemned it. But it took the actual invasion to prompt them and the welter of criticism they face from other people on the left and in the anti-war movement. That's what pushed them to finally take a stand. Uh, what the problem now is, of course, they are saying that they oppose the West arming Ukraine. Now, I don't want a war. I want negotiations. But clearly, right now, Putin is not ready to negotiate. And his, his negotiating tactic is that basically, or has been, that Ukraine must surrender and uh, become part of his greater Russia. Now, to say that Ukrainians cannot have weapons, defensive weapons, not offensive ones, but defensive weapons like anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles, that is effectively condemning them to being conquered by Russia. If they haven't got weapons, they'll be left defenseless. Even worse, they have criticized sanctions against Russia claiming it is ramping up the tensions and hostilities. Well, they won't even support non-violent economic sanctions. 
You know, it is so outrageous. And yet, on the other hand, they do say one good thing, which is the incredible hypocrisy of the West when we condemn Russia's terror bombing of Ukraine, but collude with Saudi Arabia's terror bombing of Yemen. Uh, the British government has given two billion pounds worth of armaments to Saudi Arabia since it intervened in Yemen. It has killed thousands of people, thousands of civilians. Um, Stop the War is absolutely right to point out the hypocrisy, but the bad deeds of Saudi, which they have always campaigned against, do not change the fact that for a long time, until very, very recently, they never condemned Russia. Do you think um, Labour MPs who are still involved with Stop the War Coalition, Peter, I'm thinking of people like Diane Abbott, should reconsider their membership of it, bearing in mind it took them so long to get round to uttering any criticism at all? Well, absolutely. And you know, I was shocked that just you know, not long ago, uh, Diane Abbott was still saying that she treated the claim of Russian aggression with scepticism. Now, this was just before the invasion, but they were amassing 130,000 troops at that time on the Ukrainian border. Quite clearly, divisions that were geared to an offensive operation into that country. To maintain a scepticism at that stage was so outrageous. Moreover, she never condemned Russia and she never uttered a word to support Ukraine's right to self-determination. Now, she may have changed more recently, but the fact that she was saying this not long ago, uh, just days before the Russian invasion, I think is profoundly shameful. Having said that, having said that, I think people on the right of politics also have a lot to answer for because they also did nothing while um, Russia was terror bombing uh, Syria and reducing cities like Aleppo to rubble and ruin. I mean, the thousands of civilians killed, tens of thousands of civilians killed by Russian bombings of schools, hospitals, uh, mosques, and residential buildings in Syria were war crimes. And our conservative government uh, failed to act, failed to even support um, humanitarian aid drops to those cities. So it isn't just the left, although I, I call out the left, it's also the right as well. All right, that's Peter Tatchell. He wrote a powerful piece uh, in The Mail about it this week and he's made some pretty powerful comments here on the podcast. Peter Tatchell, thanks for joining us. So a wave of new British sanctions have targeted a further 370 Russian and Belarusian individuals and entities. There's also going to be bans on the export of luxury products to Russia, including artworks and fashion, and big tariffs are to be raised on Russian exports, including vodka and fur. Joining me now is Alex Nice, researcher at the Institute for Government, uh, who is an expert in Russian politics. Alex, we were accused of being having a pretty slow start with these sanctions, but we now appear to be catching up fast, if not perhaps even overtaking other countries. Yes, absolutely. And the measures that the UK government brought in uh, rushed through with the Economic Crime Act essentially allowed ministers to impose sanctions much faster on individuals and companies, particularly when they'd already been sanctioned by the US, the EU or other allies. And that was 
clearly aimed at making sure that the UK wouldn't lag behind other countries. In your view, are these sanctions effective? Are they working? And if so, what are they achieving? The most powerful sanctions are not really these latest ones that have been placed on rich businessmen, some companies and, as you said, ban on some luxury good exports. The really critical ones were imposed um, a couple of weeks ago and were on the central bank and the, the major banks in Russia. And what that's really uh, meant is that Russia has no access to foreign currency and they, we've seen a big devaluation in the ruble. We've seen that companies are finding it really hard to operate. A lot of companies are stopping their operations in the country. Um, and there's going to be a, a, a really serious economic recession in Russia. Um, whether that's going to change the calculation on the ground uh, in Ukraine immediately, well, it hasn't so far, but it certainly creates a big incentive um, in negotiations for um, and a big carrot uh, that, that can be offered uh, if there were some kind of ceasefire, that some of these really painful sanctions could potentially be rolled back if there is uh, some kind of lasting peace settlement. And, and what about the tariffs on things like vodka and fur? Are they big exports for Russia? No, I mean, to be honest, these are fairly symbolic. The, the yeah. key exports for Russia are is oil and gas. That yeah. is the backbone of their economy. And at the moment, we haven't sanctioned uh, those parts uh, of the economy. And so uh, at the moment, you know, they're still earning money from selling oil and gas to Europe, to the US. I guess one, imp- one um, Im- impact that the government will be hoping for, Alex, is that public opinion in Russia becomes aware of the scale of the, of the sanctions and uh, start to question why Russia has become such a pariah on the international stage, because that could be a key way to begin to undermine Vladimir Putin's grip on power. Mm, absolutely. I think it's a complex picture. On the one hand, a lot of people only watch state media, Russian government's narrative, however hard that is to, to, to believe, uh, that this is a limited operation, um, to uh, within uh, small areas of Ukraine, not a full-scale invasion. Um, many people in Russia are against the war and uh, opposed to the idea of Russia, you know, fighting fighting their neighbour, uh, a, a country which ordinary Russians have many uh, close personal ties with. Um, but whether um, the, the sanctions, what the, the impact of these sanctions will be on public opinion. It's hard to predict. On the one hand, we are going to see a very serious economic crisis, high rise in unemployment. That could lead to all kinds of political instability. On the other hand, we've got to bear in mind when these kind of really severe sanctions have been placed in the past on countries like Iran and Venezuela, you can also get a backlash. And actually, um, the anger is not so much uh, uh, aimed at uh, the, the government themselves, but out. out at outsiders and the West, and it could stoke even further anti-Western attitudes within the country. Well, that's something we'll have to watch and wait and see, won't we? That's uh, Alex Nice. He's a researcher at the Institute for Government who is an expert in Russian politics, talking about the latest wave of sanctions. So a stark warning has been issued that Britain is on a path to potentially the worst economic recession since the bad old days of the 1970s. There are fears that indicators in our economic data show inflation could go as high as 10% this summer and it could hit 15% within a year. I'm joined by Patrick Reid, who's a leading economist and lecturer at the University of Cambridge, who's issued this warning. Uh, Patrick Reid, 15% inflation, that's devastating. That's going to have a huge impact on people's cost of living. 
Absolutely. Yeah, and you can really see that on Wednesday's earnings. Uh, real, real wages at minus 1%. This is crucial, um, and it's something that, you know, I think the government's kind of sugarcoating. Um, so, you know, we're, we're at this, this point where, you know, oil and gas prices skyrocketing, um, you know, blaming it on Russia and Ukraine, but they were, they were really high before that. And this is a huge problem, and, it, and it's something that uh, we really need to address. In the short term, what can be done? I, I mean, it would occur to me that the government's going to add to inflation when they raise national insurance, uh, which is going to put up bills because they're raising it for employers too. Uh, that could disappear, I suppose. But what else would you suggest they do now to try and minimise the, the, the economic hurt for families? Okay, so essentially we've got a big decision tomorrow. Um, raising interest rates will help and cool inflation, um, but there's also redu- reducing the asset purchases, um, which is the opposite of QE, i.e. QT. And the other thing is just telling us the truth, because you know what is potentially rosy uh, on on the unemployment and, and earnings. If you look under the bonnet, it's actually not so good. So obviously we've got a spring budget coming up soon, and you know there's some talk in some circles it's going to be um, a potentially rosy picture. Um, but we do on the very same day, which I believe is the 23rd of March, um, we'll have our own inflation as well uh, report. So I would say um, self-education. I would say um, don't overstretch. So we all have to have a personal responsibility along with some proper guidance uh, from the government, from the Treasury, to say, look, um, we've really recovered from the March 2020 lows through a, a great vaccination program up there you know, with China, actually in, yeah, ahead of the US. But now's the time not to be complacent and, and overstretch. Um, so that's the key thing to, to give off that message to say, look, you know, all is not well, and if we continue to do what we're doing, um, it, things will get worse. They so tighten the belt. And and when, if 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 we are going into recession, when does that happen? And what what is the trigger for recession? Well, nobody really knows which pebble creates the avalanche, but we do know on the Bloomberg say consensus, the GDP growth is is nosediving. Um, the from the early 2021, it was around 5.7%. It's now at 4 And the change in the shift of sentiment, is it does actually create a downward pressure. Um, and if you look at the expectation from the same camp in CPI, it's, it's the opposite. So these, these, these two things, when, when they start to really diverge like this, this causes um, uh, some a bad draft and essentially I'm looking um, at least three to six months at a potential recession. And and yet we hear from the Chancellor's people and uh, Michael Gove who was one of the cabinet ministers who was on the broadcast round at the weekend that the spring but the, the spring statement uh, which is effectively could be a budget is not going to do anything about tax it's merely going to be a statement of intent. Does that suggest complacency to you? Yes it does. The example, really, is after Wednesday's um, real wages 
you know, the real terms minus 1%. When that came out, the Chancellor's response was far more positive, highlighting a year of, you know, falling unemployment and stronger jobs, you know, bouncing back far more than many predicted. Um, I think this is wholeheartedly disingenuous, and it shows um, the real under-the-bonnet stuff, the real figure, is, is definitely the, not as good as what the Chancellor says. So, look, we, we, we're not really sure what, what's going to come out of the budget, but one thing that I, I will say is if this complacency not to give off the proper message, um, if it continues, everyone is going to feel the pain, and, and regardless of higher oil and gas prices as a result of uh, the Ukraine-Russia conflict. Really, it's depressing, but um, thank you for spelling it out as you have. That's Patrick Reed, who's a leading economist and lecturer at the University of Cambridge, as we rattle relentlessly into a full-blown recession. That time, it's that time in the podcast. Deputy Sports Editor Tim Nichols is here with the latest from the world of football. Let's talk about Man United first, um, Tim, because they're out of that European Cup. That is a disaster for them, isn't it? It's a big blow. It was their last chance of silverware this season. They're now on their longest uh, trophy drought since the early 80s. So that shows you just how bad things are. Last Mm. trophy was Europa League under Jose Mourinho. That feels like a lifetime ago almost uh, in 2017. So much has happened since then. Um, And yeah, it's it's a pretty miserable time for the club. They spent so much money on players um, and so many of them have not worked out. Obviously, they they went big for Ronaldo in the summer and to, to bring in a talent like that at this stage of his career you've really got to be going all out for all the big trophies and they're nowhere near the Premier League title race Um, may not even get back into the top four in the Champions League for next season had an early exit in the FA Cup got nowhere in the League Cup and obviously last night was you know they were basically Atletico Madrid are a really good side and a bit too savvy for United, really. Um, and United never really looked like making the breakthrough once Atletico went 1-0 up. And, you know, with this uncertainty over the manager, they've got Ralph Rangnick, who's an interim manager. Uh, they need to get that appointment right in the summer. Uh, obviously, po- Pochettino, the former Tottenham manager, has been linked with the move. Uh, Eric Ten Hag at Ajax, who also got knocked out of the Champions League last night, has been linked. The one that, that a lot of people have been mentioning, that in, given what's been going on at Chelsea, is, is their manager, Thomas Tuchel, who mm. would be a very, very good appointment. Uh, Chelsea fans won't thank me for saying that, but he would be an excellent appointment for Manchester United. But would he want to go there? They are a bit of a mess. Uh, yes, they've got the money, they've got the prestige. We know that one of the biggest clubs in the world. But right now, you look at that playing squad and it needs major, major sh- surgery. Um so they're in a difficult situation. They absolutely need to get this managerial appointment right. They've gone through so many managers since Fergie left in 2013. But what's happened perhaps as well, they were lucky with Ferguson because he was such a brilliant manager. But but since he's left, the whole club seems to be rudderless. They don't, you know, you, when you look at Manchester City and, and other clubs as well, Liverpool, they seem to have a strategy and identity. They, they know where they're going and what they want to do. United seems scattergun approach. They... they chuck money around in the transfer market not necessarily buying what they need but perhaps a sort of slightly sexier signing someone that might might do well on social media and commercially mm. when you know 
of course, football is a huge commercial entity now, but ultimately what football fans want is to see their team win. And, and Manchester United fans have, have got grown used to that. A lot of them have grown up with it, and, and that's what they expect. They expect them to be competing for the biggest trophies out there. And at the moment, it's very painful for them because they're two big rivals. Liverpool and Manchester City are the best two teams in the country, two of the best in Europe. Manchester United look miles away from that at the moment. Need to get that managerial uh, appointment right in the summer. And and what about Chelsea, uh, finally, Tim? What's happening there? Well... It's, it's all the action off the, off the pitch which is causing the headlines. It is as ever with, with, with Chelsea at the moment. They are in Champions League action shortly against Lille uh, in France, but having won the first leg 2-0 in, in London, they should be fine. But, but yesterday was uh, an absolute PR disaster class from the club. Uh, they were forced into an embarrassing climb down. They'd requested that Saturday's FA Cup quarterfinal at Middlesbrough was played behind closed doors for, I quote, sporting integrity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the reason they, they are requesting that is because they can't sell tickets to their own fans. About five or 600 have already got tickets because that, that they bought them in advance of uh, the sanctions placed on the club. But the licence that the government have issued means that they can't sell cl- uh, any tickets for any games. And therefore, Chelsea, you, you suspect it was probably some kind of bodged, botched you know, attempt to get put pressure on the government to lift the licence or change the licence so they could sell tickets to fans. But this was not the way to go about it. Understandably, government, people in football... Uh, Middlesbrough, their own fans condemned the move um, because, you know, the fact is what they perhaps didn't realise that if they, if they are arguing for sporting integrity that, you know, there's no away fans present, well, there'll be no away fans at Chelsea for the rest of the season because they cannot sell any mm. more tickets. The only people who will be at Stamford Bridge for the rest of the season are season ticket mm. holders. Uh, so that would mean if they'd got this request uh, 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 approved... Well, then every game that Chelsea played for the rest of the season would have had to have been behind closed doors. So I'm not sure they quite thought it through. Understandably, Steve Gibson, who's the Middlesbrough owner, this is a huge game for Middlesbrough, yeah. home to Chelsea, FA yeah, Cup yeah. quarter-final, great occasion for the for the town. And he said it was abhorrent, rotten, uh, said sporting integrity and Chelsea do not belong in the same sentence. Really went for him. You know, mm. respected former player Graham Lasso said it was one of the most embarrassing mm. statements the club's ever put out. Understandably, Chelsea then backtracked, climbed down and decided to withdraw the request. It was an absolute shambles from their point of view, particularly in light of everything that's going on around the club at the moment. You know, there will become a time, I'm sure, further down the line where they can, you know, maybe hit back at some of the things that have been been accused of recently. This is not the time. Get on with the game. Fascinating story and a great story told so well as ever. That's Tim Nichols, who is, of course, the Deputy Sports Editor here at the Daily Mail. Thanks for joining us. So many of those meal deals that you spot in your supermarkets are in fact packed with fat and salt. And believe it or not, some have more salt than a Big Mac and fries. Action on Salt have looked at over 500 meal deal products and are now calling for the government to intervene on foods that actually could damage our health. Sonia Pombi is campaign manager for Action on Salt and joins me now. Um... Uh, you've spotted some of these combination, food combinations at Subway, Boots, Tesco, the Co-op, um, and they're pretty loaded with salt. Is it easy to tell how much salt's... I mean, is, is it clear on the labelling, Sonia, or do you have to really scan it to, to see the figures? Yeah, um, it's not as easy as it should be. It depends, I guess, on the stores that you're going into. Some of the um, the kind of more popular high street supermarkets may have... Uh, the front of pack colour-coded uh, traffic light labelling on the front. So if it's got red colour, if it's more than 1.5 grams of salt per 100 grams, then you're, you, you'll know that it's a high product. But it's not in every single 
um, product that you might find and it's not in every single store. So you really have to kind of like scrutinize and look at the back of the packet and look at the nutrition tables. And you have to know what is a high salt product in, in the first place too. So it's, it's not always easy to tell and it's not really something, uh, I guess, that people might think to look for. Now, a Big Mac and Fries has 2.92 gram of salt. Your survey is showing that meals deals sold by high street giants contain 80% more salt than a Big Mac and Fries. That's a staggering figure. It's quite worrying, isn't it? You had one, you had one store, uh, you had Subway, they had uh, about 5.3 grams of salt in their meal deal, which is a, like a, a six foot sub with two snacks bizarrely uh, and and a drink as well and 5.3 that's close to your maximum daily intake of salt that you should be having um so you know without even thinking about all the other foods that you'll be eating throughout the rest of the day you're, you're already topping up you're already going over the amount that you should be eating because we're supposed to eat no more than six grams of salt per day that's right yeah that's for adults and and obviously less for, for children too but on average we're eating and you know no surprises here if you're looking at the meal deals that are on offer. On average, we're eating much more than that. We're eating about 40% more. Um, and it might not sound like a lot to, to most people, but it, it does have a huge impact uh, on, on, on public health, on population health. Yeah, of course. And of course, these meal deals are popular, Sonia, quite often because they're cheap. You can get a deal for as little as £3, um, uh, and which is why um, you must be so concerned about them. It's exactly that. Yeah. I mean, you know, especially now that most people are going back into their, their workplaces um, and, you know, times are really difficult right now financially as well. So people are going to be looking out for those for those 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 quick, convenient and cheap deals. And it's just really unfortunate that many of these are so unhealthy. We, you know, we looked at the proportion of the snacks that that are on offer in these meal deals and only about five percent were fruits and vegetables. Um, more than more than 50%, nearly two thirds were crisps, sweets and chocolates. So it's not really much of a choice out there. You know, we should be making the, the, the healthier choice, the easier choice and the most affordable one. And, it's, you know, the environment that we're in at the moment just isn't set for that. Why do they put so much salt in? What's the point? It's a good question. Um, it just makes cheap food taste better. Right. in a nutshell um you know we, we've become so used to having a high salt diet now that if you were to just reduce it drastically you would notice it and food would taste bland we you know our taste buds have almost almost become hooked on the salty taste of things um so it, it just it just it just makes those things so convenient but we know that it can be done we know that you know we've been calling on food companies to to reduce that salt intake and what's important we ask them to do it slowly and gradually so that way you and I don't notice that difference in, 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 in the food. We've, we've seen it happen. We know it's, it can be done and it has been done. Um, you know, things like breakfast cereal, cornflakes now has about 50% less salt in it now than it did 20 years ago. You wouldn't know it. You, you haven't noticed that difference. But I, I'm sure if we gave you a, a bowl of, I'm sure if I, if I gave myself a bowl of the old cornflakes, mm. it would be unpalatable. So we know that it can be done. And if we just reduce it slowly, in most foods, it can be done so simply. We just need companies to have that willingness to do it. And at the moment, there's only like this voluntary program that government are kind of encouraging companies to do it. Not everyone's doing it. And it's just, it's not creating that, le that level playing field out there. And just finally, Sonia, are you asking the, are you asking the government to compel these uh, high street names to do it, to lower the salt product? Yeah, I think it's time now that the government stepped in. They, they, they've been kind of threatening the food industry for so long now that if they don't work towards these salt targets, these voluntary targets that are out there for them, that they're going to 
um, put them through legislation and make them mandatory. They've been saying that for so long now, and companies are just calling their bluff now. So it's, it's time to kind of follow through with that promise and, and, and make it mandatory for everyone so that they all work towards the same target. All right, that's Sonia Pombe. She's campaign manager for Action on Salt. Thanks for joining us. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pearce. This is The Andrew Pearce Show. I'll be back tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night.